All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to, to join us. It is great to be in God's house on Easter Sunday morning. I want to ask you a question. I'm curious myself, just because I've never experienced this, but how many of you guys have actually lived through an earthquake? Well, that's a dumb question. Okay. You obviously lived through it. How many of you guys have experienced an earthquake? A real big time ground shaking earthquake? That is the most fearful, frightening thing I can imagine. Almost. Hell is worse, but the idea that the, suddenly the earth is starting to move. I, I think of all the unexpected events that that we see in creation, earthquakes are the most frightening. They come without warning. They literally rock your foundation and there's nothing seems to be the same when they're done. Tornadoes, hurricanes, you can see those coming. I've been through all those. But earthquakes, not so much. Everything just starts shaking. Earthquakes in the Bible often tell the story of God. In fact, you can tell the story of God through the Bible by following the earthquakes. Earthquakes tell the story of Easter. We're going to talk about that today. But I want you to understand that throughout Scripture, the story is told about human life that started in the Garden of Eden. A life led by the Spirit but lived in the flesh. And then sin came and God's Spirit left. And what remained, our flesh, was destined to die, and we're left lacking God's spirit, incomplete on earth, trying to understand this created world without the influence, instruction, and guidance of our creator. When Jesus came back to earth, he brought the spirit back. But in order for us to accept the spirit of God, we had to surrender to him. The price for our sin was what Jesus paid on the cross that Friday afternoon. Bible's very clear about that. You see, we're not here because we believe a certain philosophy about how we should live our lives. We're not here because we believe the Ten Commandments are the key to pleasing God. We're not here to perform our way into God's top grading curve. We're not here today because we're special or sinless or even good people. We acknowledge that we're not. That's not why we're here. We're not even here today because we have good moral standards, because we fail often. We are here today, we call ourselves Christians, not because we follow a series of religious beliefs, but because of a very specific moment in human history. On a Friday afternoon, a day in history, just like Pearl Harbor, just like 9-11, there was a day in history when a very real man, who was also a very real God, went to the cross to take our place because a just God had to pour out his wrath for all the sins of the world. And on that Sunday morning, that God-man vanished out of his own tomb. On that day, death died for those who believe in him. We don't perform our way into salvation. We can't. We don't pay our way into salvation. God already has everything. We don't think our way into salvation. It's not a matter of intellect or knowledge. It's a matter of the heart. We're saved from death because we believe from our hearts that Jesus is God, that he came to earth, that we're sinners and have no hope of saving ourselves from God's punishment for our sins, that on that Friday he not only died in our place, but he suffered for our sins. He was sinless, but he took our place. God punished him instead of us. We didn't die, he died for us. And on Sunday, he rose to save us. It's not a religion, it's a fact. It's a true moment in human history. And it changed everything. Matthew 27, 59. Jesus has just given up his spirit. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it on his own new tomb, which he'd cut out of rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there sitting opposite the tomb. Mary Magdalene. I want us today to follow the events of the cross and the resurrection through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. 
She's the only single person in Scripture who saw everything. She's the only eyewitness to every event that occurred that weekend. She saw far more than any of the disciples. She encountered the resurrected Jesus before he appeared to any of the disciples. And the message of what happened was given to her to share with the people, not the disciples. If you want to understand in a deeper way what really happened, stick to the eyewitness. I want to warn you that some of the things you think you know about that Easter morning may not have happened. You've seen so many paintings, so many images, so many greeting cards at Easter that you believe what might actually not be in Scripture. And we'll get to that. We know very little about this woman other than her name indicates that she was from Magdala in Galilee. Magdala is a city on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And she was Mary Magdalene. She came from Magdala. Historically, she's been portrayed as a prostitute, but that's never been in Scripture, never hinted in Scripture, and there's no support for that. The false gospels written in the second and third century tried to portray Jesus as married to Mary Magdalene with children and married to another woman as well. That's why those aren't books of the Bible. They contradict truth no matter what A&E and the Discovery Channel try to tell you. Let's look at what God says about her. Luke 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. At some point, Mary, somewhere in Galilee, she meets Jesus. And he casts seven demons out of her, and then she joins the bands of disciples, and she follows him everywhere he goes. Mary saw everything that weekend. She was at the cross long after the disciples fled and were hiding. When the disciples ran away from Jesus, she ran to him. There were many women there looking from a distance who'd followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When Jesus died on the cross, the last people standing there with him were the women that had been following him. Mary Magdalene saw him die on the cross. She saw him take the body down. She saw them carry him to the tomb. She saw them wrap his body and place him in the tomb, and she even helped initially prepare his body until the Sabbath made her stop. Mary was the last person to see the body of Christ as it was placed in the tomb. Don't forget, he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and he went away. He shut the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there sitting opposite the tomb. She followed him from the cross to the grave. When the stone is rolled over, she's sitting there watching. On Friday, Jesus was left inside the tomb, but on a, it was called a burial preparation bench. It's the receiving part of the tomb. It's a place where they lay the body out and they wrap it in linens and they put burial spices on it. And then later, they'll come back and, and they'll put that tomb into the tomb chamber. They'll put the body into the tomb chamber. No doubt the women thought that after the Sabbath was over, they would come back, they could have the stone rolled away, they could finish what they were doing, and they could properly prepare Jesus' body and place him in one of the burial niches. Jewish preparation after death was a huge thing. While the Jewish people were observing the Sabbath on Saturday, Pilate had other concerns. The next day, that is the day after preparation, this is the Sabbath, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now often we think of the story of Easter and we think we've heard it so many times. What did Mary find that morning when she got to the tomb? What did she find? 
Most people say she came into this beautiful garden. She saw the tomb rolled away. The sun was rising. It was a beautiful morning. Flowers were blooming. Butterflies were singing. Now the difficulty is the accounts of this moment in the four Gospels are difficult to follow. The problem is, is that some tend to blend all the visits together into one visit. Others seem to break them into different visits. Mary came, this happened, she ran and told the disciples. John and them came back, then they did, and then Mary, and then Mary was by herself, she saw Jesus. So they all sort of tell the same story, but they lump it together in two of the Gospels. This drives our time sequence, logical Western minds crazy. But the key point for a Jewish audience was simple. The tomb was empty, angels were involved, and God did it. That's all they would need to report. But picture you have that you see on greeting cards are certainly not the moment that Matthew describes. Mary arrived at the tomb, and when they arrived at the tomb, they found the tomb closed and the Roman guards guarding it. Wow, that's different. We're told that Mary and the other women were concerned about this scenario. How are we going to get the stone rolled back? And it wasn't at sunrise. She and the other women came in the dark, most likely between 4 and 5 a.m. I read somewhere years ago that on that day the sun rose in Jerusalem at 6.12. Listen to Matthew as he tells the story. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, okay, that's 4 or 5 a.m., Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Pitch dark, they go to the tomb. And there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. Is that what you see on the Easter cards? The stories of Easter always seem to show the beautiful garden and the wonderful flowers and the butterflies and the birds and the sunrise, but that's not the full historical truth. It was pitch dark. 4 or 5 a.m., Roman guards who had tortured Jesus were now standing over his tomb. There was a huge earthquake and God is literally shaking things up. Earthquakes in the Bible often signify the actions, the presence, and the power of God. And God wanted us to know that if you don't get anything else in this moment, I'm the one doing this. And my stamp, my seal, is an earthquake. God's presence on Mount Sinai was manifested by an earthquake. Peter would be freed from prison during an earthquake. Earthquakes would be labor pains for end times events. When Jesus returns, an earthquake is going to rip the Mount of Olives in half. Earthquakes are all throughout Revelation, but in our story, the Easter story, there are two earthquakes to focus on. And both are huge to notice, and both almost always get overlooked in the Easter story. And when you take the earthquakes out of the Easter story, you take away the power of God in the moment. The earthquakes that weekend announced the power and presence of God. And the earthquakes basically said, God is here, and God is solving our two problems with him. Our sin caused two major problems with God, two problems that we cannot solve, that only God can solve for us. Our sin ruined our relationship with God, and our sin caused all of us to die. Those are the two problems. And through the two earthquakes, God is shaking things up, and he's going to tell us, I got both of these for you. Friday afternoon, earthquake number one. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Our sin separated us from God. That curtain represented our separation. There's always been a barrier in our relationship with God. We never could get to the Holy of Holies because our sin stood in the way and the curtain manifested that sin in the temple. 
No one could enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. Why? Because of our sin. So when Jesus died on the cross, the first thing he solved was our relationship with God. He made it so man was no longer separated from God because of sin. Our relationship with Jesus would forever change. And we'll see in a bit with Mary Magdalene, we'll never again be separated from God. At least not from God's perspective. That first earthquake was God stepping into creation and saying, I've got the relation problem solved and it's solved right now. You will always be able to come directly to me. You don't need a priest. You don't need sacrifices. Jesus just did that for you. He's your priest. He's your sacrifice. I'm here. Come to me, all who believe in him. Translation, earthquake number one, I'm God. I'm here, and I just solved the relationship problem. Now, the tomb is closed and guarded. No human can do anything about it. Jesus is dead. The women were discussing how to get the stone rolled back. The Roman guards who had tortured Jesus all of Friday were probably not going to let them near the stone. It was hopeless to them. They didn't even know the guards would be there. All that happened on the Sabbath. The earthquake announced that God was here to solve their problem. Not just the problem of how to get the stone rolled away. God was there to solve the death problem. Translated, Friday I restored our relationship. Earthquake number one. Today I'm solving your death problem. Earthquake number two. You couldn't have done either on your own. I'm working in your midst to save you, to overcome death, and to restore our relationship. Everything lost in the Garden of Eden, I'm restoring in this garden this morning right now. The earthquake, God says, is my calling card. I want you to know that I'm doing it, because you can't. And the angel is my stamp of approval. Now notice something very unusual about this angel. Usually angels just kind of show up and freak people out, right? They appear and say, fear not, but by then you're unconscious, so you don't hear them. This angel didn't do that. This angel, do you see it? Descended from heaven. This angel came down to them in the dark from heaven. This angel probably looked like a star or a meteor. They saw something in the sky descending from heaven in the dark, and it comes down, earth shakes, the, the stone is rolled away, and this sucker sits down on top of the stone. He's just sitting there. The angel rolls the stone away and then amazingly sits on it. Sitting down was a sign of triumph, victory, completion. My work is done. Relationship stored. Death resolved. We're done. I'm going to sit here and watch what happens. Well, guess what happens? The guards fall to their faces in fear. The archangels always had proclaimed that Jesus was God. Now he proved it, and they can sit and enjoy the moment. They announced the birth of Jesus, and now they're announcing the true revelation, the spiritual birth of Jesus. Not really spiritual birth, the spiritual birth for us and the completion of his earthly mission. That picture you have of the beautiful garden and the flat pretty ground and the stone rolled away in its track and the sun rising behind the tomb, which apparently means it rose in the west that day, but that's a whole other story. It's devoid of the true power of God on that morning. What we miss in that picture is the power of God. So change your Easter morning, serene sunrise, empty tomb image and picture God shaking up the world. Pitch dark, earthquakes, angels descending from heaven, rolling away the stone by himself, and oh yeah, the big tough Roman guards cowering in fear like they were dead, the Bible says. Picture the stone rolled to the side among the other stones now tossed around the garden, plants uprooted, ground uneven, dust everywhere. Now you have the image of what it looks like when God solves our death problem. And Mary and the other women were the only Jewish witnesses to this display of God's power. You see, we can clean up the Easter story, but 
we lose the power of God. We've done it to the cross for years. And we've done it to the resurrection as well. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he's risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now Mary is told what happened, but she doesn't understand it. She knows God opened the tomb. She's told by an angel that he's risen, but she doesn't comprehend it. She's in shock. She didn't expect the Roman guards to be there. She had no idea why they were there or what they were doing. No doubt she thought the Roman guards were there to take his body, not to guard a grave. We know why they were there. She didn't. It was on the Sabbath that Herod placed them there. They weren't supposed to be there. They were a surprise to her. If Roman guards were at the tomb, surely they weren't there to worship him. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. And then I love this little fact. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) Little John telling Peter, I got you. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Now, some have tried to accuse the disciples. We saw it in the passage with Pilate that they were going to steal the body. If they had stolen the body, they wouldn't have been surprised and they wouldn't have run to the tomb. They would have said, oh, yeah, yeah, there's a conspiracy going on. We're good. It's not what they did. They ran to the tomb. They didn't understand what was happening. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Of course, Peter went in first. That's what Peter does. He saw the linen cloth lying there, the faith cloth, which has been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up at a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, again, stick it to Peter, I got there first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he has to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. Notice it's the disciples that went back. Now this scene is not chaotic and it's not confusing. It's very purposeful. Someone had simply stolen Jesus' body. Surely the clothes would be missing or it'd be strewn around on the floor. But this is a scene where the body's missing and the clothes appear relatively undisturbed. Jesus' body has left them behind. He vanished. We can also assume that there was a significant amount of, of burial spices and other things there. Okay, so I hate to do this. Since I've already blown up your idea of Easter, I'm going to continue. You know that picture you always see of Jesus walking out of the tomb? Probably never happened. His body vanished. Mary was standing there when the angel rolled the stone back. She looked inside and saw the body was gone. Jesus hadn't walked out past her. She ran to tell the others, if Jesus walked out of the tomb, she'd have seen him. You see, we try to make Jesus too human. And one of the messages of Easter is he's going to tell everybody from this moment forward, everything's changed. You now are going to relate to me spiritually. Notice that the two disciples didn't understand what was going on either. First, they didn't believe the women. Now they don't know what to believe themselves. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she she stooped to look in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. She still doesn't understand what's happening. Now this is one of the few places in the Bible where someone encounters angels and are not stricken with fear. Mary's so freaked out at this point, the angels don't even phase her anymore. I want to know where my Lord is. She's so grieved that she's not even affected by the appearance of angels. Also, these angels weren't present in that tomb when John and Peter were there. They appeared to Mary. They were sent by God specifically for Mary. No description is really given of the angels. When angels appear in the Bible, they're usually recognized by their power rather than any difference in human form. Mary didn't respond to them in any unusual way, possibly because her eyes were clouded with tears. 
probably she was just preoccupied with the loss of Jesus' body. All she's focused on is, where did you take the body of my Lord? Mary's frustrated. She just wanted to pay her last respects. They've killed her Savior. She's been a witness to the horrible event. She knows where his body was. She watched him roll the stone. She watched him unroll the stone. It's not there. The guards are there, but she doesn't know why. Surely they were there to take the body. That's what Roman guards do. They take the body and they violate the body. Leaders often did this to punish other presumed kings. They would parade the body in the streets. They'd hang it from the town square. They put the heads on a post. She's imagining the worst event may actually be getting worse. And being Jewish, she's particularly concerned because proper burial was regarded by the Jews as a key part of their faith. Mary's freaking out. She thinks the guards are going to take the body and parade him through the streets and that what she went through on Friday was just the beginning. She had no thought of resurrection yet. She believed the corpse had been stolen and she's freaking out. And the, the angels ask her what appeared to be the most stupid question in all of Scripture. Why are you crying, woman? They don't address the missing body. What they're trying to do is suggest to Mary that maybe you should be crying other kinds of tears. That maybe this moment doesn't call for tears of despondency and despair. In a minute, you're going to be crying because you're going to be celebrating. Mary's so messed up that she missed the significance of angels in the tomb. She missed that this tomb was no longer in the hands of humans. She's standing on holy ground. Mary, you're no longer standing in a tomb. You're standing in a womb. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? What, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Woman, why are you weeping? There's that question again. This time Jesus asked her, whom are you looking for? He asked her. At the very beginning, death had come to Adam and Eve and the rest of us in a garden. And now life is coming back in another garden. And of course, Jesus is indeed the gardener. He's the one tending to this new life. He's the one bringing it for all of us. Notice Jesus asked the same question. Woman, why are you weeping? Why am I weeping? She asked me, what's the matter with you guys? They've taken the body of my Savior away. These are the worst three days I've had in my entire life. They tortured him and killed him, and now they want to humiliate him. What do you mean, why am I crying? And then Jesus always does what Jesus does. I love this about Jesus. The first question gets your attention. The second question cuts to your heart. Who are you looking for? Translated, why are you here? Who are you looking for? Who does your heart really seek right now? What is it you want above all else? Mary just asked, can I just have the body? Maybe it's just a small way I can show my love. Mary's response to the angels and Jesus are the same with one exception. She tells the angels she does not know where they have stolen and taken the body. Then she pleads with Jesus, if you're one of the ones that has done it, just tell me where it is, I'll go get it. You see, her mind remains on the problem of the tomb and the body, and Jesus is trying to lift her to something higher. He does this all the time. You're focusing on the physical but this is a spiritual event. This is a spiritual moment. You're worried about a body. Jesus and the angels are trying to help Mary understand that the whole world has now changed. Where his body is is not even important anymore. She knew the God-man Jesus in the flesh as a human. Now she's going to have to learn to interact with him spiritually. From this moment on, no one will find Jesus in the flesh 
he would now present himself to Mary and every other person in the Spirit. You see, everything has changed. Jesus is letting Mary know the world will never be the same again. And Jesus' question points her in another direction. The reality of meeting him is more important than the riddle of the tomb. She's about to understand that the way she relates to Jesus will never again be the same. Do you notice the mistaken identity? Are you the gardener? Supposing him to be the gardener. Remember when I've shared with you, I don't know, a thousand times that nothing in the Bible is there by accident. The story of God started in the garden and God himself was the gardener. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Who was the caretaker of the Garden of Eden? The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. The first Adam, after God breathed life into him, was given the assignment of caring for and nurturing God's garden until, of course, man sinned. Now the second Adam, Jesus... God has breathed spiritual life into and given the assignment of caring for and nurturing God's garden, his family of new believers, a spiritual garden of people. God told the exiles of Judah, I will build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them, not pluck them up. Remember, Jesus had a parable about God being the vine dresser. Just give me another year and I will take care of them. Jesus is the gardener in the new Eden. He's doing what Adam had failed to do. His resurrection broke into this garden, marking the beginning of a massive human restoration project, a spiritual mission of God that was starting right now in this moment, and they're trying to get Mary to see it. Jesus is the one that plants us and grows us. He's the one that gets dirty. He's the one that stores up the soil of our heart and brings us to life and cultivates us with care so we grow and flourish. Supposing him to be the gardener. Why? Because he is. Jesus said to Mary, said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Notice a couple things here. She speaks to him in Aramaic. Hmm. Why did they include that? You want to know what your native tongue is? Drop a brick on your foot. Whatever comes out is your native tongue. Mary is in so much shock, she doesn't speak Hebrew, she goes back to her Aramaic, the language of Magdala. She's freaked out, she turns to him and she says, Rabbi, you see, the risen Christ speaks her name tenderly, but with all the authority of one who's overcome death. It's the shepherd calling one of his sheep and she knows that voice. The only thing necessary to identify Jesus is him uttering her name. No gardener would know her name, and no one would ever pronounce it the way Jesus did. She knew. And then, don't miss this, she turned to him. She changes directions, not physically, but spiritually. It's a moment when she turns from grief to joy. It's a moment when she turns from death to life. It's a moment when her tears change from despair to joy. And in adoration and wonder, she falls at his feet and says, Rabbani. It's the title somebody gave Jesus, would give Jesus at the beginning of their faith. She calls him Rabbani. She's saying, look, I understand now it's a new spiritual thing. This is really significant because Jesus calls us personally, intimately. We recognize his voice, but we have to turn. We have to turn towards him. We have to turn toward his plan for us, his path for us. We have to respond when Jesus calls our name. And note the response. She fell at his feet in worship. 
Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Why didn't Jesus want Mary to touch him? That's not what this says. The ancient Greek construction of this phrase means to stop an action that's already going on. Mary was holding on to Jesus and she didn't want to let go of him. And Jesus turns to her. And this is the good news of the resurrection. We get to turn to Jesus and we get to hold on to him. It shows that the resurrection was a real body, a physical body, and not just some kind of phantom. She literally held on to Jesus and wouldn't let go of him. Jesus tells Mary not to hold on to him because he's not yet ascended to the Father, but he directs her to tell the disciples that he's going to and he'll meet him in Galilee. And she keeps clinging to him. She's not going to let him go, ever. Mary's trying to hold on to Jesus the way she knew him to be before the resurrection. She's trying to hold on to him in the flesh. She's trying to keep him human with all the human limitations so she can keep her arms around him and, and grab him and keep him in her box. But Jesus is revealing to her, Mary, everything's changed. Her image of him as a human in the flesh is about to change. From this moment forward, no one will encounter Jesus physically until the end. He is now spiritual, and if we want to encounter him, we have to encounter him spiritually. Jesus is trying to help her understand. It's not don't touch me. It's that you have to connect with me spiritually from now on. Clinging to me physically isn't going to help you. He's revealing that the way to interact with him is changing. He's soon going to be in heaven. And what he's telling her is, you knew me as Jesus, the God-man. Now you must realize that I am the second person in the Trinity the Son of God, I'm no longer human. I've been God forever, and now I'm going back to my place. You'll remember me as a human, but you will interact with me in the Spirit. I'm going to where I belong. You see, I belong in heaven. Mary, you've got to let me go. Everything's changed. I have to go to the Father now. Don't cling to me. Jesus is telling Mary, you're not going to relate to me through physical senses. His body, where is it? Who cares, he says. The tomb, no longer important. Jesus says, I'm alive. I've been spiritually born. I'm going to heaven. When he told Mary to stop clinging him, he was saying so much more than don't touch. He was telling her and he was telling you and me. We can't hold on to Jesus in the flesh any more than we can continue to hold on to ourselves in the flesh. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to follow him in the spirit. We have to not try to see him as a human and understand him as God. And we've got to quit seeing ourselves as people in the flesh and begin to understand we've been reborn in the spirit. I say it all the time. We are not humans trying to have a spiritual experience. We've been reborn. We're now spiritual people trying to have a human experience. That's what Mary had to learn. You can't cling to the Christ that you knew before. He tells her, go to the brothers. Previously, he called them disciples. One time he called them friends. Now for the first time, they're his brothers. The use of the word brothers put the disciples on a new plane of relationship with him. Now the sin issue's been taken care of. There's a new relationship for those who believe. I'm now your brother in Christ. We're a family of God. We've all been reborn spiritually. Jesus gives Mary an assignment. Don't miss this. It's critical for us this Easter. You can't stay here and cling to me. You have to go tell everybody else what you've seen, what you've experienced. The message of Easter is this in one sentence. You can't stay here and cling to me. You've got to go tell everybody what's happened to you. 
You can't stay here in this church, in your home, here with worship music, in your quiet time, in your small group. You can't stay here in a comfortable place. You cannot stay here and cling to me. That's not why I died and resurrected. I died and resurrected so those who are my brothers and sisters leave their place of comfort, stop clinging to me, and go tell the world what they've witnessed. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Now note something here that's really important. The women who've witnessed everything, who weren't hiding, who stayed at the cross, who stayed at the tomb, who were the first ones there and the first ones to see the resurrected Christ, they go to tell the men. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with him who went and told these things to the apostles, but the words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe it. Don't miss this. For the very first time, the gospel of Jesus Christ was shared with another human. They didn't believe it. And they were disciples. In the gospel, she is the very first person to whom the risen Christ reveals himself. And she's the very first of his followers to announce the resurrection of the Lord. She's the first person to feel the rejection of the greatest news in all of human history. She runs to the people who should, of all people, know. Two of them have come back and said, the body's not there. And she comes and she says, I've seen the resurrected Lord, and they thought it was an idle tale. The fact that Jesus makes a woman the first witness of his resurrection is huge. In courts in those days, a woman could not testify. This argues for the historical truth of the account. If you were making this story up, you would never have Jesus reveal himself to a woman. Twice on this Easter weekend, God shook up the world. First time he solved our relationship problem. Then he solved our death problem. On that Easter weekend, God rocked Mary's world too. He destroyed all her ideas about who Jesus was supposed to be. And he revealed to her who he really was. He changed the way that she would forever interact and worship with him. No longer in the flesh, now only in the spirit. No longer able to stay and cling, now empowered to go and tell. We need to study Mary Magdalene at Easter because her experience that day is our experience. Have you ever experienced one of God's earthquakes in your life? Has God ever allowed something that rocked you at your foundation? That moment when you realize that what you thought you knew about God really wasn't God at all. That moment when God literally shakes you at your foundation and does something completely new. When your world gets turned upside down and God invites you into a relationship. Tearing the veil, the wall that you've put up in your relationship between you and him. That seismic moment when you realize God is calling you out of your tomb inviting you to join him in the resurrection and become part of the spiritual realm where he works, leaving your flesh behind just like he did and living in the spirit from that point forward. God bringing a foundational change into your life and calling you to a higher place, to a spiritual place, destroying anything you're trusting in other than him. You see, God often brings an earthquake in your life to let you know, I'm about to do something in your life. I'm going to reveal myself to you, but you're going to have to turn. You're going to have to understand that what happens from this point forward is spiritual, not physical. God has a way of bringing spiritual earthquakes into our lives to get us to test our foundation, to find out about the strength of our faith, and to understand where we've truly placed our trust. His earthquake in your life breaks up rocks of pride and self-sufficiency and arrogance and money and entitlement and patriotism and intellectualism and humanism. Anything you've placed in your life ahead of him, he will shake up so that he can reveal to you what the true spiritual foundation should be of your life. So let me close with this.
as you sit here this Easter Sunday, what's the reading on your spiritual Richter scale? Is God shaking your foundation and revealing some of your fault lines? Is he showing you that what you've placed your trust in is shaky ground? Is he rocking your world so that you can become part of his? Is he using the events of your life to show you the weaknesses in your bedrock and your self-sufficiency? Is he sending an angel of light into your darkness? If so, are you falling away seemingly dead in fear like the Roman soldiers? Or like Mary, are you drawn and clinging to him? On this Easter Sunday, 2020, is Jesus' burial a place where his life ended or a womb where your life can begin? Jesus said that it is through our faith, our trust that these historic moments actually happened, that we can join him in the resurrection. The earthquake that God allows in your life does two things. It tears down whatever you've trusted instead of God and it forces you to a decision point. Your body that houses your soul will eventually cease to exist. So let's cut to the chase. One day, a day God has already determined, your life here on earth is gonna end. Just is. You will cease to exist. When that moment comes, and it will, what will become of you? You see, when God created us, he placed eternity inside of us. We all seem to know that there's something beyond this world. That when we cease to exist here, we begin to exist somewhere else. So far, God has been absolutely right about everything he's written in the Bible. Not one mistake yet. Those historical documents from God have perfectly outlined our history as a human race, fully explained everything that we need to know. Not one mistake. So when God tells me about eternity, I'm going to believe him. Some things in the Bible are hard to understand, but God makes this one crystal clear. God tells us that we'll either join Jesus in heaven or Satan in hell for all of eternity. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's consistently repeated in Scripture. It's not even debated by serious scholars. There's no doubt that's what the Word of God says. You can't read God's Word with any kind of integrity and deny that He believes hell is a very real place. Jesus spoke more often about a literal hell, a place of fire, torment, and gnashing of teeth than He ever spoke about heaven. In fact, you can't believe in heaven and erase hell. They either both exist exactly as God revealed them to us or neither of them exist. But here's the deal. No matter what you think, the only thing that matters is what God says is true. Your opinions compared to God's truth are the ramblings of a fool. You can think hell doesn't exist if that works for you until you find yourself there. Your opinion doesn't take away or change God's truth. God's truth was true long before he created you and gave you the ability to even have an opinion. But this is what you need to know this day. If you reject Jesus long enough, God will stop shaking up your world. There's a point in your life where God gives you what you want. God says that he'll give you over to your debased mind to do what you want to do. Harden your heart long enough and it'll stay that way. The story of Easter is a reminder. A spiritual tremor. Okay, an earthquake in your life. To remind us that tomorrow's never promised to us. When it comes to you and your eternity, you must decide. 
Was Jesus' grave a tomb? Or was it a womb? And that changes everything. Let's pray. God, we come to you on this Easter Sunday morning. We recognize the power that you have when you intervene in the events of human history, when you intervene in our life. God, I don't know all the people that are watching online. I don't know who's listening. I don't know where this sermon's going to end up. But somewhere there's going to be somebody that needs to know. Right now, God, in the quietness of our spirits, you are calling our names. Just like you called Mary. And your sheep know your voice. So when you call our names, God, please, please, help us to turn. Help us to leave all the flesh things behind and focus on spiritual things. Some of us, God, are clinging to you and not going anywhere with your message. Would you shake our world up until we share the message you've given us and stop clinging to you in safety? God, others don't know you this Easter. They've hardened their hearts year after year. They know the story, but they don't believe. They've deceived themselves to believe that what you've said is true doesn't even exist. And God, their eternity is at stake. Would you do whatever's necessary to wake them up? If not my words, use somebody else's. Maybe yours directly. But God, this is a big event. It's the greatest event in all of human history. Satan would do almost anything to shut the message down. So God, help us to hear your voice clearly. Help us to be open when your earthquake shatters our spiritual safety. Draw us close to you, God, but please don't leave us where we're at. For those who don't know Jesus this Easter, it's all about faith. It's all about believing that these moments in history actually happened that you have sinned, that you have hurt God's heart, that you've hurt other people, that you can't pay God back and you can't solve the relationship or the death problem. But on that Friday, two earthquakes literally happened. God shook his creation and solved both. And he says, all you have to do is have faith that those historical events really happened and they happened for you. So God, please today, shake up our world Break our foundation if it's not you. Do whatever you have to do so that we can clearly hear you calling our name. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for resurrecting. Thank you for giving us Mary as the witness to it all. We love you and we ask it all in Jesus' most incredible, most powerful holy name. Amen.